Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a live radio show and podcast. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to topics of interest from professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. So I thank you all for joining me back again this week. Uh, This week is a really uh, different uh, take on what what we have for for leaders that tune in to this every single week, and the, what it is is a is a topic that impacts all of us, but many times people just ignore it uh, if it does not immediately uh, impact their lives kind of on a day to day basis. But it is something that impacts us all, and so I I have invited the historian an African-American studies professor from uh, UC Davis um, who has a book out, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but a award-winning teacher and author, and so I could go on and on, but I'm just anxious to get and excited to get to the, the topic itself, and so I'm pleased to introduce you to uh, Ben Weber. Welcome, Ben. Thank you so much, Dr. Perkins. I'm honored to be here. Really excited to chat with you. Well, really, really glad to to have you. And because of the 30 minutes go so fast, I just I, I have to apologize. I want to jump right in and and start uh, with our conversation. I'd love to know. I know you're a professor and a historian. Um, when I when I saw some of your 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 reporting, I know you've done some uh, research on uh, and reporting on the uh, impact of mass incarceration. But I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and what really led to kind of your interest in contributing to this discourse, particularly around uh, the, the, the impact of incarceration on society. So what, what, why, did you, why did this come up for you? Yeah, thanks for that, that question. Um, <clears throat> you know, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, involved with environmental justice and racial justice issues. Um, And I knew in high school and college that mass incarceration is really the social justice issue of our time. Um, And but I really felt it in a more acute way um, and was became more aware of the impact of aggressive policing um, when I was teaching high school in in East L.A., um, where I first saw a lot of my students. and their families go through the system. Um, and when I went to study it, you know, going in search of, of root causes and, and explanations for the rise of this problem, I came to black studies um, frameworks and methods as really holding the key to taking both the long and broad view of root causes and also solutions. Mm, mm, okay. And so this was a, was this something that uh, you saw um, that it was actually impacting, so you, as you were a teacher, impacting the families that you that you uh, served in in your role. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I knew a lot of young people who um, were arrested and and bailed folks out of jail, and talked to family members, and 
you know, East LA is, is unincorporated part of LA. And so it's um, policed by the sheriff department and, and, uh, you know, it just reminded me um, of, you know, and, and also teaching history there, um, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, the Brown Berets, just like the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, used to describe their communities as under a kind of colonial occupation because of how aggressive the policing um, was mm-hmm. and how people were treated. And so, yeah, um, really talking to families and, and showing up to um, bail hearings and, and other things, um uh, really opened my eyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, as you mentioned that, you talked about the kind of policing, um, which obviously leads to uh, the the um, I guess we could say the uh, the the real impact that mass incarceration has because it's it's in the pipeline, right? So it's a it's a it's a contributing factor to how many people who gets uh, who gets arrested and who ultimately gets charged with crimes. Um, a little bit, and this may be outside of what you studied, but it just something that struck me as I listened to you talk about what was happening in these um, these other communities because I I've seen on the internet and I'm sure many listeners have too the what happens when uh, some bad apples act um, and they how they behave towards certain populations what is it that you've seen in your research or in since you you've been in this field what is it that makes an individual who says that they're there to um to uphold justice and 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 be a positive on the positive side what makes them uh uh do things that that actually are breaking the law uh, it's just it's just so prevalent in what we what we hear and it's, it it just feels like it's more than a few bad apples so but what is it that that from what you've seen that causes that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, um, the system, like taking a structural approach um, to understanding how the system came to create this crisis um, of mm-hmm. over incarceration where we, you know, incarcerate more people like at world historic rates um, more than any other time in human history where a hundred million people in the U S alone have criminal convictions. Um, it's really so much like you're saying so much bigger than individual actors. It's an, it's a system. Um, and so understanding its historic roots, um, and the ways that it baked in certain incentives, the ways that it brought technologies of social control and other things, you know, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly from, um, overseas war making from other, um, types of, of things, um, really helps shift that understanding from the kind of individual bad apples, like you're saying, to understanding the structural problems, the deep um, institutional and structural uh, histories that have created this crisis. Sure, sure. Um, and so I, I, and I don't know how true it is, but again, uh, things that I've read and heard about what, what we refer to as the uh, prison industrial complex, and that there there's big money in in prison 
Um, I just happened to pull up uh, just today a report from the uh, controller of the state of New York, and it's actually a report from 2021 uh, about the the cost, and it is the title of the. It starts out with cost of incarceration per person in New York City is at a was at an all-time high, and this report's dated December 6, 2021. But it said the annual cost of incarceration grew to 500 and basically 556 thousand dollars a person per year. Five, and I, I had to read that like four times. What is this real? And I know it's probably they are just simply taking all the expenses associated and the number of people. Like, okay, here's what it costs. But, but they said the annual cost per person quadrupled from 2011 to 2021. So it's way more than inflation here. What is it? Is our our prisons, both state and federal, are they privately run? What is, what is it exactly that would cause that kind of increase in expenses uh, to the public? Yeah, yeah, that's a really really good um, point and a good way to to frame it. You know, a lot of people um, rightly get angry about um, the way that private prisons um, are run by corporations um, because they say, you know, the profit motive makes um, the wrong set of incentives. But as you're pointing out, um, you know, most prisons are run at public expense um, and they have been for a long time. And so you can't really separate out private prisons and, and the logic of profit um, and all of that from the publicly run political economy of prison expansion. Um, so here in California, it worked in a certain way and across the nation. And historically, you know, my book takes the long and broad view. And so one of the things um, that I trace historically is its roots in racial slavery and colonialism. Um, and this happened, you know, at the end of the 19th century when there was a big movement to abolish the private uh, convict leasing system where they said, you know, what's most terrible about this um, is that it's exploiting people for profit. Um, but, you know, when it moved to a public uh, use system, when the private convict lease uh, system was abolished in most states, the publicly controlled system, um, both within the United States and in places like the Philippines and Puerto Rico and Panama, um, were, was, was just that it still continued to expand um, the apparatus of punishment. Um, and one of the, you know, really sad and, and scary aspects of the prison system and one of its con you know one of the ways that it that it moves the legacy of slavery forward is that um, or perpetuates the logic of slavery you know is that um, under slavery it wasn't just exploiting enslaved people's labor um, that provided profits it was actually storing um, uh, capital storing amounts of um, speculative amounts of money in human beings. And so, mm -hmm. you know, in the prison system, you can see that the warehousing of human beings um, is actually a source, creating a source of, of value. And that's a really insidious logic, mm -hmm. you know, rooted in both racism and capitalism that, um, that, you know, I think activists and other people are really rightly pointing to and, and trying to change. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, what what's preventing it from changing? So I know that there are lobbyists for prison complexes and um, also hear about the the fear that a, a lot of politicians strike in in the citizens of particular areas. But what is it that's preventing us from taking a look at it for what it is and saying, okay, we need to change this system because this is unfair to one group or, or another, but it is, it is something that is uh, inherently corrupt. What, what keeps us from making the right choices here? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think the, there's, there's many complicated um, ways of, of answering that, but um, you know, I, I am heartened that there's a growing movement and a growing awareness. Like you really do see a shift in consciousness um, where people are realizing more and more people are realizing that um, the system has kind of created, um, been rooted in systems of, of racist violence um, and has created a crisis um, that is making everyone less free um, and that the continued expansion of the system presents dangers um, and really um, detracts from um, what the future could hold. Um, and so, you know, part of it is people's um, deeply rooted notions of, of um, you know, security, that they're socialized into a particular way of thinking about um, their own safety. Part of it is rooted in the long histories of um, how in inequality has been um, created in this country, um, and it takes more and more violence to police ever-increasing inequality. Um, mm -hmm. But I, but as I said, you know, I do think that that um, is changing across the country. That there is a huge, you know, we saw the the broadest, the largest and broadest protest movements in U.S. history in 2020, um, protesting yeah, yeah. state violence and and calling out racism. So, yeah. um, I think there is there is you know, positive change coming. Right. I, I, the, the thing I worry about is that, um, that a lot of that went silent. And I don't know if it was necessarily because there were no other examples. We had some very, um, uh, very uh, in-your-face examples of, of wrongdoing at the, at, you know, during that time. But I also postulated with my friends and colleagues that, um, that we, you know, we had a time of where people were essentially not at home. I mean, not at work. Um, also, that there was there was a, a willingness to go out, and people were able to protest. Um, not that they wouldn't have, but there were the the, the choices were different uh, in the protest and not protest. But I, I just worry that 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 has somewhat gone silent. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, um, I think there there's all there's, you know, history shows us there's a kind of dialectical relationship between freedom movements and repression. There's a backlash or some people, you know, have have characterized it as a front lash. Um, every time there is um, a movement growing to um, broaden the meaning and experience of freedom. 
um, in this country. And so, you know, I think that um, it's, you know, maybe not gone silent, but, but been actively silenced, you know, um, in certain ways. And, but it's still there. And it's, um, you know, yeah. you, uh, you, you see it in the classroom. You see it in people's changing attitudes. And you see it in movements across the country that are trying to do concrete things like, you know, end prison slavery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who are just joining, I have um, with me Dr. Benjamin Weber, and uh, he is a professor and historian at the University of California, Davis, who um, is studies uh, America, uh, African-American uh, history. And we're here talking about um, the impact of mass incarceration uh, on society um, so, Ben, you, you have a, um, a new book um, entitled American Purgatory, Prison, Imperialism, and the Rise of Mass Incarceration. Take me through a little bit. Let, help me understand what it is. I know you take a historical perspective here. Uh, I have not gone through the entire book yet, um, and so just starting, but I I did not see... Um, in the introduction where you you mention schools and the impact of schooling. I'm not going to say it's not there because I haven't gone through it, but I, I, I would like if, if you could just give me an overview of what it is that um, uh, from a historical perspective you, you are communicating here, but what, what are some of the big takeaways? Yeah. Yeah, that's. Um, I can share three big ideas um, from the book, and um, the you know the overall message, like we've been talking about, is is the importance of taking the long and the broad view. Um, so the first idea is that we've really uh, missed the international dimensions to this crisis. Um, so the first idea is about glo- uh, mass incarceration's global reach, um, and basically, you know, you can trace that in different ways. Um, but, you know, people, you, you may be familiar with um, the 13th Amendment and the way that it has that exception for slavery and involuntary servitude to be used as punishment for crime. Um, it was made famous or infamous in um, documentaries like the 13th um, yeah. and things like that. But that language, um, the, the, the law, the federal law and state law that says um, slavery and involuntary servitude can be used as punishment for a crime applied not only within the United States, but to any place subject to their jurisdiction. So part of the book looks at all of those places that um, all of those territories where the U.S. was using prison uh, slavery, essentially prison, um, uh, you know, uh, slavery and involuntary servitude um, uh, to to uh, build American empire. So the way that um, colonialism and empire shaped the growth of the carceral state. Um, because, you know, plantation labor at places like the Iwahig Penal Colony in the Philippines looked a lot like Parchman Farm at the same time, and the black chain gangs in the Panama Canal Zone looked very similar to the road gangs in the in the South. Um, and so part of it is the international dimension. Um, and the second part is about the search for root causes um, and and so how this history it's a 400 year history um, you know that exception um, you know didn't originate in the 13th amendment in 1865 it actually originated with the Northwest ordinance in 1787 before the Constitution was even ratified um, and so you know people in prison and 
And black studies scholars will tell you that the slave ship um, is actually America's archetypal prison. And so that, that law for slave for prison slavery is actually the, the longest lasting and farthest reaching piece of, of federal policy um, or in state policy. Um, and so the, um, you know, and the, and the last idea, you know, the second half of the book shifts from kind of what's been done to people um, in the past to what people have done to protest um, and, and to push for change and to um, kind of push against the expansion of the carceral state. Um, and so the, la- the second part of the book is really about global freedom dreams. Um, and, and that part is, is that we have so much to learn from people who have internationalized the struggle. Um, and so that's people, you know, like Asada Shakur and, and the uh, takeover of Alcatraz, um, people who went to the UN um, and petitioned for the recognition of political prisoners, um, a black radical tradition who um, expanded the definition of human rights um, in, in um, charging the U.S. with, with genocide and, and targeted um, violence towards their communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that piece, you know, um, is that in, in each case, um, those people who internationalized the struggle had to go beyond the terms of domestic politics alone um, to find an anti-colonial analysis in the 50s and 60s and, and a decolonial framework for uh, a range of possible solutions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the, to the extent that um, politics played a role in this, what, what would you say was, was the, the biggest factor that perpetuated the need for prisons and mass incarceration as we know it. Yeah, I mean, um, there's, uh, you know, in, in each chapter, there are, there are ways it gets into the nitty gritty of, of the politics. So there's a chapter on, you know, the Jefferson Monroe penal doctrine where they're searching for a place to create a national penal colony. Um, there's a section on the way that um, certain ideas in foreign policy, certain assumptions um, about preemption and deterrence, um, retribution and rehabilitation, this kind of thing, um, actually were mirrored in prison policy. So the way yeah. that um, you know foreign policy shaped prison policy, and the way that, and vice versa. So the way that um, policymakers were thinking about um, colonial subjects, were thinking about modes of social control and how that circulated between sites of U.S. empire and U.S. cities and then was either, you know, um, disavowed or uh, unacknowledged. And I think, you know, that's one uh, major way, you know, as, as we continue to reckon with the legacy and the history of slavery in this country um, to also reckon with the history of empire because, you know, whether we choose to disavow or ignore it, um, you know, that process crucially shaped um, the rise of the surveillance state, modern policing, and mass incarceration. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you, as you you know, I am a professor in um, in education uh, leadership, and a lot of what uh, of what I I do is train leaders for uh, school buildings. Um, I've I've also been on the policy side myself as a former school board member and other. Um, but um, so as I mentioned, uh, so the, the education side really 
uh, is interesting to me. It, it's pretty widely circulated where you hear people say things like the school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, there are a number of practices in schools that resemble, eerily to me, resemble uh, prison uh, policies. Uh, and and so I don't know to what extent that you uh, talk about this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, particularly around discipline. Um, I, I guess I've been reluctant historically to say that I believe there's a group of people that are somewhere planning this, where um, that there are so there are these very strong correlations between. Uh, reading between you know, the ability to read and then uh, going to jail or prison. There are strong correlations that people have between discipline practices in schools and where children end up uh, long term. And so, but as I said, I, I've been reluctant to believe that there was a group of people somewhere saying, let's do these policies and these practices so that we can put children uh, when they become old enough, let's put them in. Let's put them in jail. Uh, one practice that's yeah. a very common discipline practice, uh, where, uh, or I should say, disciplinary strategy, is uh, them in some schools where people paint lines on the floor. Uh, so yeah. that students can line up and things like that. And I hear all the time, I, I'm actually against that practice for a lot of reasons, but I hear all the time where people say, you know, they're, they're getting these kids ready for prison in a lot of ways. But I'd love to hear your thoughts about the connection of the way we do schooling and and the the strong correlations between our practices in schools and the prison uh, uh, system. Yeah, yeah. Um, the you know there's a there's a piece in the book about the origin of the federal boarding school system inside um, a prison in, in Florida, um, and the way that um, again certain ideas about family separation, certain colonial logic. So, you know, I think to your to your point that um, you know to what you know, can we can we say it was a group of people kind of plotting this? One of the insidious logics of white supremacy or or white the certain brand of white people's racism historically in this country is that you know sometimes um, in the name of quote unquote saving people um, they actually do a lot of harm. And so that you know you see in um, the colonial logic of prison control, you see it in schools. Um, and so you know part of it, there's people who have have written really. Um, beautiful and strong uh, work on this, including Bettina Love and and others, you know, um, and the history of of being pushed out of schools, of the um, you know uh, prison uh, school to prison pipeline. But you know, the one of the historical connections is is about um, you know how other people's children are are seen um, and are treated, um, you know, both with malice and ill intent on some some times and and also just structurally and systematically um, a lot of these systems don't trust parents and communities to 
um, do what's best because they really don't know and haven't been um, in those uh, people's family systems, in those communities. And, and that's really a product of, of uh, racism, honestly. Um, and, and so, you know, there's the attitudes, but there's also the structures um, that are in place. And um, I think, you know, I used to hear that the, the school system, you know, hasn't um, radically transformed from its kind of industrial model and, and even before that, its model in, in really trying to assure compliance and all the rest in over 100 years. So in the same way that, you know, I think a broad transformation of the criminal legal system is on the horizon. You know, I also think a lot of really brilliant and exciting people are, are rethinking schools right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and and I, I think it's interesting that um, there are so many uh, similarities that I mean, when you when you think about the way in that, that some schools are not just organized, but just the way they look and yeah. the way they're designed. And yeah. uh, it, it is, and maybe that's, that's a, uh, a problem with kind of standardizing what, what, you, what should happen in these, in these spaces. But, it just really, it for me, it has long been a question I've had about: um, Are there really people who are thinking about making this happen, um, and at for the purpose of of ultimately profiting later from uh, incarcerated uh, people from a, from a particular section of our society? Yeah. And there, there are alternatives, you know, what the, the people um, who have internationalized the freedom movement and, you know, there were freedom schools, there were excellent black schools in the South in the 19th century. Like there had, there's a long tradition of um, alternative visions of this that center self-determination um, and that are being carried out and have been carried out historically in really concrete um, places. You know, there's a whole practice of um, placemaking that the black freedom movement um, and uh, understands really, really well. Um, and I think, you know, looking both to the historical examples um, and the future kind of placemaking is, um, is exciting um, for the alternatives to um, what you're saying, this kind of uh, the way that, that schools are, are built and run right now. Yes, yes. And, and lastly, you know, I started out with talking about the kind of money uh, we spend on on um, prison, and it just doesn't make a lot of sense if we're talking about that number uh, in New York, um, talking about a half a million dollars, and then a fraction of that is on the education side. Um, just doesn't make make a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that statistic, you know, 20 years ago now when we were spending more every day on war in Iraq and Afghanistan and than we were in a year on schools and just thinking about everything that could be done with that money um, and also thinking about the way that it can't go into the same um, kind of, you know, block grants and other ways that, that funding has been distributed to create the systems that um, we're now trying to re-envision. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I know that there are people out there that would love. Tell us uh, where, um, if you have articles. Um, again, I, I mentioned at the beginning, those of you listening, um, his latest book, American Purgatory, Prison Imperialism and the Rise of Mass Incarceration by the New Press. Um, but if there are any what places, social media handles, uh, email addresses, websites that you want to share, please do uh, encourage any of you to uh, look at some of the things that uh, you've written. Um, but please share with us where people can follow you and support your work. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, you know, you can find the book in all the places that books are sold, of course. Um, I'm sure as other people do encourage you to, to buy it from places that support local bookstores. Um, and, uh, you know, you can find me on the UC Davis website. You can find me on my, my own website, on the New Press website. Um, and I'll be talking about the book with a lot of um, really exciting activists and, and artists and other people um, over the next few weeks. Um, and so there's a list of talks there. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, I think the other important thing is to remember that beyond, you know, its literary thing, you know, the book is more than a book. It's a platform um, to kind of learn and grow and change. And so, you know, I'd encourage you to look at um, websites like the Jericho Movement, websites like the National Network to Abolish Prison Slavery, um, and, and other things that, that grow out of this history. Um, and so, you know, to understand the roots of these problems, but really uh, to stretch in reaching for the range of available solutions. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll be uh, watching and listening and, and cheering you on this important work. Um, we'll hope to talk to you again and, and uh, see you soon. Um, until then, go well, stay well. Oh, such an honor. Thank you, Dr. Perkins.